yet. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is what I like to call the Earth 2 version of Nico, our reoccurring co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Michael. This episode will slate of reviews because Chuck, Castle, Bones, Fringe, Smallville, and Supernatural were all new this week. Yeah, and the reason why Michael is joining us here is there was a scheduling conflict regarding Nico coming back to the U.S. from the Virgin Islands. So that meant that recording with him was going to happen at a later date. So to work things out and get a podcast out to you guys faster, I had Michael step in to join us for our discussions on Chuck, Smallville, and Supernatural. And Nico was going to take care of the other three shows, but due to having to travel... Nico was unable to record a news section, but you can still access the news for the week by visiting our Facebook page. So I suggest that all of you go and check that out. All right, so now that we've got the news out of the way, we're going to start things off with our episode reviews, beginning with Chuck. At the episode, Chuck versus the Family Volkoff. Sarah Chuck a surprising relationship curveball, but his way orders Vivian Volkoff assassinated. In order to prove Vivian's innocence, Chuck must put his trust in his dangerous ally, her father, Alexei Volkoff. Meanwhile, I suspect that her mother is interfering with search into her father's past. Recently, word on the interwebs has said that Chuck has lost its thunder by becoming too repetitive sending it on the road to cancellation. But I think the writers proved that there's still fuel in the gas tank. By this week's episode, starting off with the conflict of Sarah wanting Chuck to sign a prenup, exploding into a spy versus spy face-off that could be best described as 43 minutes of sheer intensity that ended with us asking, who is Agent X? And as I just mentioned, this episode starting out with Sarah wanting him to sign a prenup, of course sent Chuck into a panic. But Morgan and Casey, who seem to get along uncomfortably well as roommates, based on the way they eat their cereal together, quells Chuck's fears by convincing him to adopt the philosophy to just be cool. Again, being cool ends up being easier said than done, as Chuck's attempts to revoke a CIA kill order put out on Vivian causes T. Barkowski to have a meeting with the new head of Volkoff Industries that goes completely wrong, as it is interrupted by a sniper. Now, on that note, an argument can be made that this sniper was a man working for Volkoff in prison, but I have the crackpot theory that the sniper was Agent X. Moving on, as a result of Chuck's peace offering going wrong, he and the rest of T. Barkowski are left having to track down parts of a dangerous weapon that was once in possession of Volkoff Industries. 
causing General Beckman to have no other choice but to call in Volkov for help, thus releasing him from prison and putting him in Chuck's custody. With that being said, I know that Timothy Dalton hasn't been on the show for a couple of weeks as Volkov, but as soon as his face appeared on the screen, the quality of this episode just skyrocketed, with Volkov going through some wacky redemption process, with him acting like a cross between Mr. Rogers and what Casey described as Oprah, through giving Chuck marriage advice and going to the extent of hugging an arms dealer. As I said before on this podcast, I cannot believe how funny Timothy Dolphin is. And with this episode in particular, it seemed that he was having so much fun playing this searching for a soul Volkov, it reflected back on the audience I was watching the show with, causing their frowns that made them want to jump ship on Chuck at the end of the season to turn upside down. Plus, on top of that, there was just something highly amusing about the scenes with the arms dealer when he challenges Chuck to a game of chance, prompting him to ask if they have Udo, and they actually start playing the game. Jumping to the other plotline of this episode, Ellie and Mama Bartowski face off as Mary, to try to protect Ellie from the intersect computer, ends up being caught in the act by Clara's baby camera. This in turn prompts Ellie to have secret agent Awesome follow her mom to discover what other secrets she has been keeping from her. However, Awesome turns out to be not so awesome when it comes to being a secret agent, as as Mama Bartowski realizes that she's being followed, causing her to tell Chuck that they may need to let Ellie in on the secret that they've been keeping from her. Checking in on Volkov, even though Mama Bartowski warns Chuck it may be an act, Volkov's newly adopted Mr. Rogers' philosophy seems to be a manifestation of him losing his mojo. As a result of this, Chuck ends up having to help Volkov get his groove back to overcome a deadly game of chess, which leads to the weapon's final component. Although, just as it appears the mission is accomplished, Chuck's willingness to help people, including Volkov with their emotional issues, ends up backfiring again, as Team Bertowski discovers that the assembly of Volkov Industries' mysterious weapon was just a ruse for Vivian to convince the CIA to let her father out of jail. At this point, Volkov begins to revel with pride that his daughter double-crossed Team Bartowski to rescue him. But as it turns out, Vivian wants to kill Volkov right along with Chuck and his teammates. Now, I know there's probably some of you out there thinking that Vivian getting to the point where she wants to kill her father happened a little fast. But I don't think that's really what she wants to do. In other words, Vivian came across as someone who is scared and confused, meaning that Chuck killing her and her father is a result of trying to deal with those emotions. But hopefully Chuck is going to convince her to see things in a different light, or I fear that Vivian is going to cause her own demise. As for Volkov, his daughter betraying him literally rocked his world, to the point that I think he was redeemed by seeing how much his criminal activities hurt the people around him. A concept that was emphasized by Volkov's apology to Chuck's mom at the end of the episode, actually appearing to come from his heart. Meaning that Volkov, in a way, is kind of like the Grinch, and seeing Vivian betrayed him made his heart 
grow three times in this episode. I mean, made his heart size grow three times in this episode. Speaking of making amends, Chuck and Sarah decide to rip up their legal prenup, only for Chuck to reveal another prenup that says they will always love each other. Unfortunately, just as this episode is about to open the door to your heart, it gets slammed closed, right in our face, as Chuck's decision to tell Ellie everything about his world as a spy goes horribly wrong, because she lies straight to his face, leaving Chuck utterly speechless. Personally, I was left utterly speechless as we cut to Vivian's office in Volkov Industries, for her to declare that she is going to take down the one threat that Volkov, Frost, and Stephen J. Partowski were most afraid of, Agent X. So with me trying to be cool about my fears that we're not going to get our predicted fifth and final season of Chuck that Nico and I think are going to happen, I've got to ask you, Michael, who do you think is Agent X? Is it Chuck's grandfather? Grandmother? Cousin twice removed? Or something so far out in left field we haven't even come up with it yet? Again, there's a possibility that Ellie could become Agent X, but based on Vivian's comments at the end of the episode, that kind of seems unlikely. But we'll leave the rest of this discussion up to you, Michael, with your thoughts on this week's Chuck. I thought this week's Chuck was actually an improvement on the last few episodes of the series. I agree. And like you said earlier, I do think it is in part due to Timothy Dalton's appearance again. Now, I don't want to have to say that because I love the show and I think each character makes the show what the show is. Right. But the fact that I guess character makes such an impact on the show, I'm a little bit. And actually, it worries me more than a little bit because I do not like you and Nico do, and I actually do think that we will be canceled after this year. And in all honesty, at the rate we're going, I kind of hope we do today destroy the show any more than they have. But back to this episode, I really liked this episode. I thought Vivian star-crossing everyone was very, a very interesting plot. I did see her reasoning behind it because of what she said to her father. And that made me feel a lot better because at first I thought it was going too fast. But then I took a look at what she said and I was like, oh, well, it kind of makes sense. So that was, that was a good scene. I like that a lot. Also, the scene in the beginning where uh, Katie and Morgan are eating the cereal at the exact same time and acting like each other, that made me laugh very hard. Yeah. And I watched, this, I watched this episode in part because I need to see it live. And let me tell you, I saw that part I don't know how many times because it was so interesting. Yeah. It was. That was yeah. a highlight of the episode, I thought. Yeah, definitely one of the bigger, bigger best parts of the episode. Um, now, one problem I did have with this episode, and I think it's kind of a breach of character, to put in the best terms, I guess, is Ellie lying to Chuck. Yeah. Because Chuck has been able to lie to Ellie before, and he's been doing it for a few years, and at first it was difficult, but... Chuck has always been different from Ellie. Right. So he's always been able to get that kind of stuff. 
least to light a shock. That not only threw me off, that also made me wonder what is her ulterior motive here if she has one. Now I know she wants to find out what's in the computer and all that, but I think she has another reason for wanting to do it. Well, the thing about it is she's almost like something wacky's happening where she's almost like obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost like it's making her do things out of the ordinary. Well, could that be because of the beam that and her and Clara? I I'm cur- I'm wondering yeah. if that's what it is. Yeah, I don't know. I if that's what it is, I don't know. What would Stephen Baker have to be doing with that computer? Well, I'm wondering. You know, when Vivian said that it was something that they feared the most. Maybe it was a computer program that they're afraid of. Maybe, but why would they be, I don't know, why would they be as afraid of that? Because they make it sound like a person. Well, maybe it's like an artificial intelligence. See, that would be interesting. Yeah. Because if it's something like that, that actually could very well help save the show. I agree. Hey, again, it was I'm not trying to be a at all. Yeah. Because It'd be kind of like Skynet. Yeah. Hmm. And what you would say is it's an upgrade on the intersect. Yeah, I guess that would make perfect sense. That would be why Steven feared it so much. Yeah, so it would be like a villain that's like Chuck 2.0, but I doubt that it would be a person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, well, think about it. This is how much technology did Orion really have? I mean, he had a lot. And he could do a lot, especially with that wrist device thing. Now, if that wasn't the extent of what he was working on, it could very well be an artificial intelligence. I could very well agree with that. But think about it. He's worked with a lot of shady people. Yeah, that's true as well. And we don't know who all he's really worked with besides the right. few that we saw because I think at first he was a scientist that really didn't ask questions about what was going on and then after Chuck's mom left and some things happened I think he decided to start taking a hard look at the things he was doing and realized that he was creating something dangerous and maybe he didn't realize he did until after age right which would be very interesting if it was an artificial intelligence like Skynet, because I hope we would get a John Connor reference out of Morgan. That would be awesome. Chuck's, Chuck's version of John Connor. But it would be even cooler if Chuck's mom decides to go in and bomb the building where the computer chip is that uh, runs it. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot that she's Sarah Connor, yeah. too. That's terrible. <laughs> wow. And I just saw that movie. That's terrible. Right. So that would be awesome. That would be amazing. But yeah, that would be am- you know, Michael, you're right. That probably could breathe, breathe new life into the show. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to sound like bad about the show because I do love Chuck. And I do think season three was definitely the high point of the season. And I did like the first half of the season, but I don't want to see them ruin it to the point where I don't want to watch anymore. Yeah. If, if that makes sense, because 
I, I would love the show to keep going, but I don't want it to be something where I won't want to watch it. Well, and the other problem is you can, you can only end the show so many times. And Chuck is yeah, not anything about three that. times. Yeah. Because I, I think... Yeah, I would, go ahead. I, I would definitely say the season two finale. Season two finale, definitely. Mm-hmm. Even season three finale, too. Yeah. Exactly. And... So what were you saying? I, well, I was just saying, I think that's a thing that also killed Supernatural as well. Because season mm-hmm. five could technically count an ending. How it is an ending. And you kind of can mm-hmm. breathe a sigh of relief. Oof. Everything happened the way I wanted it to. This is good. I'm glad. And then when they say, oh, we're going to start a new story arc, it's like, oh, man, are you kidding me? Like, now mm-hmm. I have to, like, worry about these characters all over again? Right. Like, it's kind of stressful. Well, the beauty when a show does something like that, like, if you don't want to watch it anymore, right. you don't have to, and you can be happy with where it ended. Exactly. Like, I would count Supernatural Season 5 as the end of the show. Right. So I'd be there because, I've, like I've said before, this new season and the next season, which I do think it will be renewed for, I do think they're a whole different show, not completely, but mostly. Exactly. And then with Chuck, I mean, that's basically what I count as the ending. So the first half of the season before. Right. So. But I guess the consensus on our discussion is, the main thing you can get out of our discussion on this episode is they need something big to happen. They need a big mix-up. So I'm not talking about like Chuck and Sarah breaking up or things like that. But they need something big like the introduction of the enemy being an artificial intelligence. Or something that, you know, they need a game changer, a big one. They need to go off mm-hmm. in a different direction with this. Or we're in trouble because there's only so many times you can bring Timothy Dalton in, who's an excellent actor and he's stole the show all season, to be a quick patch to save the show or keep it together. You know, there's right. going to be a point that that trick's not going to work anymore either. Mm-hmm. Well, Death Star seemed to help shows in need. Yes. Definitely. And next week, I know we see uh, the dad come back. Yeah, who's a very enjoyable actor. Right. Gary Cole is awesome. So, I like to see him on, on it. And he, he was great the last time around. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, he was. It's gonna need more. It's gonna take more than just the guest stars to keep this thing afloat. Yeah, I agree. Now, do you think that maybe Agent should be his mom? I thought about that. That would be someone in her family. That would make sense. Because she's coming to the show, and we don't know much about her. Okay, so there. So. So we know Agent I'm pretty sure she. Well, I don't know if we can say that, because they never said whether or not. But my guess is, if it's not an artificial intelligence or something, it's probably Sarah's mom. Okay. Because we have not heard anything about Sarah's mom. We know that she's alive that much. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff she's not telling us. 
Now the other question is who who would play Sarah's mom? And that would cool. That would be kind of awesome. It would be kind of awesome, but I can't really see her in action. Linda Carter would be kind I, of awesome. Linda Carter would be pretty awesome. Yeah, Chloe, Chloe, and Sarah have the same mom. That'd be awesome. It would be awesome. That explains so much. They're both blind. Yeah, it would. It would. It would fit. Wow, we're crossing mm-hmm. over shows now. That would be cool, though. Yeah. As long as they did it right. Well, it'd be a nice lead-in to the Wonder Woman show that's going to be on NBC in the fall. If they, if they like it. Yeah. I hope for the best for that show. I really do. Yeah, well, well, when that pilot comes on, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I'll definitely be up for that.
All right, so now we're going to have Nico join us again to talk about this week's episode of Castle, entitled The Deadpool. On this week's episode, Castle and Beckett must solve the murder rumor who had a shot at the Olympics. They need to sort through all the secrets they uncover to find what led to his death. Meanwhile, Castle's poker buddies offer their views on the case. But this week's Castle... My enjoyment of the episode fell victim to myself having a degree in writing for film and television. Because while I was in school, everyone who had an interest in writing for the police procedural dramas would pitch a script for a plot line that revolved around an athlete whose murder had to do with steroids. Yes, believe it or not, I've seen a steroid mystery be applied to CSI, Bones, as well as Law & Order. So basically, this episode of Castle was very predictable to me based on my familiarity with the plotline. Again, with my own personal disappointment of this mystery being too predictable set aside, this episode still was able to keep my interest. It was probably considered really good by the average TV watcher through a side plot where we are introduced to Castle's apprentice, a young mystery writer named Alex Conrad. Now, at first, Castle is pretty pumped to be a mentor to a young writer because, of course, it boosts his ego. And he decides to kind of show this off by having Alex follow him and beck it around while they solve this week's mystery. Fine with it? Why would I be fine with it? Okay, I'm sorry. Come on, he's a writer. How much trouble could he possibly be? So is that a yes? Is, is that a no? However, this plan for Castle to once again show off for Beckett ends up horribly backfiring as Alex takes a deep interest in Beckett, making our mad Castle very, very jealous. Muse thievery. What's the punishment for that? Five to ten in mythology jail? (laughs) As you laugh, go ahead. (laughs) Laugh all you want. But now I finally know what Obi-Wan Kenobi felt like when Darth Vader turned on him. In my opinion... I thought that we should have gotten more with this rivalry between Castle and Alex, like what happened with Beckett and the actress in the Nikki Heat episode. But instead, we got two scenes of the murder victim's sobbing mother being told by the captain that he will do everything in his power to catch his killer. I mean, I get that they needed to have at least one scene with one of the murder victim's loved ones, but two scenes was a little bit overkill, since the reason why... I'm personally tuning into the show every week is for the main character development and the humor, not the tragedy. However, I can't complain too much because what we got with Alex and Castle's mentor-apprentice relationship was just plain comedic gold. I mean, this especially held true with the scene where Castle brings Alex to his poker game so he and his fellow mystery writers could give the budding young rookie a hard time. This is the new guy? Alex Conrad, Michael Connolly, Dennis Lane. It's really awesome to meet you guys. I am a uh, huge fan. It's not a book signing, kid. We're here to play poker. Also with this scene, I have to give props to the writers of Castle for paying respect to Stephen J. Cattle, a mystery novelist and television writer that recently passed away, who appeared in all the poker game scenes featured on Castle up until this point. Moving back to the Castle-Alex rivalry, another aspect that I enjoyed from this plotline was the writers turning the tables 
on the past two weeks of Castle, with Alexis being the one that gave Castle the advice. Don't confuse me with your reasonableness. Which he catches her dead, replacing his review of Alex's book on his website with the cover art for the next Nicky Heat novel, which I assume will be on real bookshelves sometime this summer. Although in the end, what topped off this plotline revolving around Castle and his apprentice was Beckett confronting Castle about bringing Alex to his poker game, just so his mystery novel writer friends could beat up on him. No, no, it was just a little friendly hazing. To hear him describe it, it sounds like someone was trying to teach him a lesson. What? Why would I want to do that? Because you didn't want him to spend time with me? That is completely... True. At this point, realizing that he was pretty much cornered, Castle decides to come clean with Beckett, revealing that he's jealous of her hanging out with Alex. And as I held my breath, thinking that Beckett was going to get upset at Castle, the shippers cheering for their romantic relationship got to let out of a cry of joy, as Beckett says that she thinks Castle being jealous was kind of sweet, and she's not going to hang out with Alex anymore, because from now on, she's a one-writer girl. Well, that's tricky to say ten times fast. So now that we know Castle and Beckett coming closer together at the end of this episode, means something looms on the horizon in the season finale to break them apart. What were your thoughts on Castle, Nico? I agree with you, Dan, that this week's mystery was a little predictable and has been played out over the years, but still had its own Castle touch that made it eh, all right. right. I didn't mind the episode too much. Actually, the whole Castle being a mentor to Alex was the most interesting part of this whole episode, I think. You and I discussed last week that we keep seeing indications that Castle and Beckett are heading down the road towards being together, and this episode had a few of those moments revolving around the Alex intruding on the Castle and Beckett relationship. Now, I like the fact that Castle got jealous of Alex, and I think you were alluding to that, too, that you kind of liked that. And um, I thought it was more than just the muse thing, and we all know that it was not just professional jealousy that was driving Castle's discomfort with the whole Alex and Beckett spending too much time together. But I have to say, the line that Beckett had at the end when she said, I'm a one-writer girl, that was a great line and ultimately a great scene. And that little look she had at the end that she gave them, that was priceless. Yeah, well, it told everything that was going on, all the unspoken feelings between the two of them. It really just hit it on the head. Absolutely. And your last little lead-in there kind of talked about this a little bit, and we talked about it last week, that we discussed that, obviously, this season is way too early for the Castle-Beckett relationship to happen. Right. So I'm fairly certain as well that we will see some sort of a monkey wrench thrown into the works in the finale when it looks like it's just about to happen between them, and then some sort of game-changer will happen that will prevent them from getting together this season in the finale. I'm not really sure what it will be at this point. It might be like the return of the triple killer or some revelation about Beckett's mom's case, which is going to be the plot line for that finale, or something else that I won't mention because we mentioned it last week as a spoiler concerning the finale that might cause a problem in that relationship moving forward. It just won't be the right time because of that. Regardless, my guess is that something has got to happen to stop the progress because it's moving too fast and something's got to derail it. Right. Well, I think this show, with this episode kind of being an indication, needs a bit of a shake-up because yes. things are kind of becoming 
too predictable or we're feeling too comfortable with where things are, I felt, with this episode. So they need a big shakeup. Again, I don't know if what they're going to go forward with, with that spoiler you're referring to, is going to shake up things too much or shake up things in a bad direction. That is a possibility. But they are kind of right in their feelings that there needs to be a shakeup to make this more interesting. Because you've got to hold off on that relationship. Because it becomes less interesting. I mean, for example, a show that we discuss here, Chuck, I think there are issues with getting canceled, possibly at this end of the season, that has come because there isn't the drama of the two male and female leads hooking up anymore. And that's lost the audience. And I don't think Castle needs to go there, especially when this season has been so fantastic and there's so much momentum behind their show right now. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that Chuck has lost most of its momentum this season because they are together. Now, you and I have talked about how it was a good thing to get them together and that we were sick of the relationship getting sidetracked. But in Castle, that's not the case. In Chuck, they needed to get together, and ultimately, unfortunately, it ruined that suspense and that drama and that shipper drive, is what I'm going to call it, because they haven't been together. They're still building towards it. I think Bones and Booth handled it very well in the Bones show. The writers did it very well where one of them was there and the other one wasn't, you know, and then the other one, as we saw, got there and the other one had moved on. That is classic storytelling technique because it works and it perpetuates at least one more season before they end up getting together. Chuck didn't go that route, which is okay. And if if it ends well at the end of this season, I will be happy with the show Chuck. I think it will have run its course and will be remembered as being a good show. Castle, if they were to do the same thing Chuck did, I think we would see the end of the show next season as well. So if they got together in the finale, then they'd either have to break up right away, which would break up the partnership, and that just ruins the whole show. So I think Castle is doing it exactly right, and I think... Whatever they use, whatever technique they use, we're going to hate it at the moment, but ultimately love it because it keeps our show going and keeps the momentum going and keeps us interested in seeing that happen. I'm excited for just, just to see how they handle this. So I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be good. Well, we've got a lot of indications that Castle is intended to be like Bones. I mean, Chuck, we've always said was going to be a five-season show or a four-season show. We knew it wasn't yeah. going to go for the long term. Castle's a different ballgame. Castle's a show that I see them intending to have six, seven seasons with this show like Bones. And with what they're going to do in the finale is very much so in line with what Bones did at the end of their third season. So Castle's doing the right thing on where they're going to go with things, and they're following in suit with that. And I'm glad they're going along with that idea. It's, I mean, right now it's proven that it works the best. But again, you don't want to get in a situation where Bones and Castle are following the exact same routine. Right. As well. But again, ABC, they don't want to lose this show because I think they consider it one of their flagship shows. Especially when they came out with Body of Proof, which is almost the exact same situation or type of show. Yeah. And yeah. when, when a network starts mimicking one of their most popular shows, 
that indicates that it's a flagship show. And that Body of Proof show, I don't know if you are watching it, but I am, and I'm enjoying it immensely. It's a little bit different because they don't have a clear-cut, at the moment, relationship potential. I see a potential for one, but it hasn't happened anything to indicate that yet, so I'm not exactly banking on that yet. But really, it's, it's very well acted, and Dana Delaney is doing an excellent job. I just hope it doesn't steal any of our Castle viewers. I hope it actually bolsters Castle because right. people might be like, oh, this is a similar show and I really like this. Maybe I'll go back to Castle. Or, oh, I really like Castle. I'm also watching this show and they are a great Monday, Tuesday lineup. So uh, I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, exactly. I think you're absolutely right on that. They're using Castle's viewers to get people to watch Body of Proof, especially when Dana Delaney guest starred on Castle last season. Right. So you're like, oh, I saw her before I had Castle. Same type of show as Castle. I'm going to check this out. So that's why, you know, Castles intend to go this long. But again, body of proof, when you're saying that, that they don't have a clear-cut relationship right away, might be taking notes from Castle and realizing, well, maybe if we take it a step slower on the relationship and not define it right away, we'll get even longer time to stay on the air. Yeah. So I think that's the game they're playing with that. So interesting how all these shows are watching each other. And then when The Finder comes out, which is going to be something that we'll be discussing next week on our next week's episode because Bones is actually going to connect with that show that's coming up this fall. We'll see how they're going to handle a romantic relationship on that show. And if that's going to be even slower than what we're seeing on Body of Proof. And I think they may may go that route. I think they may go slower to ensure it's always a razor's edge decision because if you don't introduce some sort of love interest or some sort of relationship, it doesn't always have to be love interest. It can be buddy relationship or something. Most of the times they want a love story in there because that helps drive story. And if you don't introduce that, you lose a lot of audience because they are expecting that or they want that. And so it's always a very fine line. you got to make sure you please everybody. You need, I think we're going to see good stuff. You need a relationship between two lead characters, regardless yes. on if it's male or female. I've also seen two male leads work as well, believe it or not. so I think Supernatural is an example of that. Right. I would say Psych as well. Psych as well. Yeah, absolutely Psych. Although that one was already established prior to the show, right. and we just kind of jumped into that one, whereas Supernatural... Because the brothers were estranged, they had to repair that relationship, right. and then it got broken, and they had to repair it again, and it was a constant struggle, but always growing, ultimately. So, different shows use different means, but a lot of times, doing the same thing. <laughs> well, if you're ready, I think it's time to move on to another show that has a relationship between two lead characters, and it's a romantic one, on the show Bones. And we're going to talk about the episode now, The Truth in the Myth. The remains of a man who hosted a Mythbuster program are found in the West Virginia wilderness, along with rumors of his death by the Chupacabra and the presence of his rival from another show. Things only get more complicated after a video surfaces that put page in theories of the crime. Back at the lab, Vincent Nigel Murray has returned and combines his duties with working his Step 9, which results in some startling revelations. 
On this week's episode of Bones, co-written by Dr. Lance Sweets himself, the actor John Francis Daly, Vincent Nigel Murray returns, announcing to the Squid Squad that his downward spiral after winning on Jeopardy has forced him into Alcoholics Anonymous. And in reaching step nine of the program, he has to apologize to anyone he may have hurt during his time under the influence of alcohol. A process that he begins by apologizing to Hodgins for peeing in his tampon pot. What? Mr. Nigel Murray, that's disgusting. Of course. Anyway, Dr. Hodgins, I apologize. However, if that image isn't already weird or gross enough, things get a bit stranger, as it appears that this week's mystery revolves around a host of a Mythbuster program, kind of slightly different than what you would find on Discovery Channel, turns out to be murdered by a chupacabra. Obviously, as with all the variety of topics that the mysteries throughout the course of this series have revolved around, the fact that this week's victim was killed by a creature that doesn't even exist spawns a highly entertaining debate between Bones and Booth on if mythical creatures such as the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, Psychic Killers, yada yada. You're actually out there. But I'm not familiar with the yada 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 myth, but the rest of them don't need disproving because they don't exist. Again, when Bones begins to give Booth a hard time about believing that these mythical creatures are actually out there, he dishes it right back at her with the line about believing in the dark side of the moon, prompting Bones to come up with what she thought was a hilarious comeback line that wasn't really funny, but Booth handled the situation perfectly by saying... It's clever. Yeah, clever. I, yeah I'd laugh, but I'd, I'd, I'm afraid of driving off the road. Yeah, I understand. You do, right? Safety first. Oh, yeah. I understand. <laughs> and believe it or not, Booth is able to pull off this maneuver with Bones twice, proving that he's pretty slick when it comes to the ladies. Back at the lab, Vincent Nigel Murray's mission to make amends for the wrongs he committed under the influence of alcohol, unveils the starting revelation that he made up having a sexual relationship with Angela, Cam, and Bones, as well as stole some supermarket coupons from Cam's office drawer. On that note, with this whole comic relief plotline, the writers tended to really build up the secret that Vincent Nigel Murray told his friends he had a relationship with Cam. But I think the best revelation of the episode was when he told Bones about making up having a sexual relationship with her. Because Brennan just laughs at him and says that his love-making ability would be inadequate. <laughs> Boy, he loves. The absurdity of you and I having <laughs> a sexual relationship of any kind. I mean, <laughs> your, your friends must be very gullible. Later on at the diner, Booth, whose love-making ability is more than adequate, reveals to Bones that while on tour in Nepal, he saw a Yeti. A statement that Bones immediately dismisses. But then David Boreanaz gives us a great performance in this scene that made Bones and all of us in the audience begin to strongly think otherwise. In the end, it turned out what appeared to be a chupacabra attack was actually a hotel owner desecrating the murder victim's body after he was killed in a hunting accident to increase business. But as for Booth's Yeti sighting, Bones puts a serious amount of research into proving what Booth saw was real. He just called it by the wrong name, as the Yeti was supposedly a seven-foot-tall bear covered in ice. In my opinion, 
regardless on if Booth saw a Yeti or not. This scene brought a smile to my face, because Bones, putting so much effort into proving that what Booth saw was real, shows that she has gone a step farther in learning how to become more personable, which means she's one step closer towards having a romance with Booth. At the same time, everyone's favorite fountain of random facts, Vincent Nigel Murray, also learns an important lesson about being personal. Never lie about sleeping with a man's wife. As Hodgin convinces Vincent to look in his microscope, and as he looks away, he has two black rings around his eyes. And you're absolutely sure that you're okay with this whole Angela business? Do you really think I'm that petty? No, no. <laughs> of course not. Finally, in the last scene of the episode, Booth tells Bones he never saw Yeti in Nepal. Therefore, he rationally explains something that never happened. From here, Booth then goes on to explain that making up the story was about showing Bones that life is confusing and inexplicable. Brennan laughs at the notion, saying that's just like their relationship, and heads off in a cab, leaving us to want to watch more of the show to see how these destined lovers are going to hook up. So with that, Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of Bones? This week's Bones was not all that exciting for me. The Chupacabra idea was a different idea than usual for Bones, and thus I knew my boy Hodgins would love it. But overall, it was not the greatest mystery, and thus kind of made the episode fall flat, just in my opinion. Now, the interactions and debates between Bones and Booth that you mentioned were really good, as we've always come to expect of this show, but still didn't seem to make up for the mystery and make the episode what I was hoping for. Now, that being said, I don't blame John Francis Daly for me not liking the episode. Rather, I just was not into the episode for whatever reason. So I'm not blaming the writers. I'm not blaming my boy for not making something I liked. Because I did like certain things, especially the characters were definitely written really well this week. And we we knew the way they were going to react. And we weren't surprised by anything other than Vincent Nigel Murray apologizing about saying that he'd had sex with all his co-workers, which was hilarious. <laughs> the best one was when he told Bones, and she laughed in his face when, yeah. when he told her that. <laughs> that was great. So there were definitely parts of this episode that worked for me. Yeah. It just overall mystery and story just didn't do it for me, and I'm not sure why. This is what I'll say to that. This was far better than some of the episodes we had in the first half of this season, even though it did fall flat. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying this is anything near as bad as anything with Hannah. (laughs) This was still better than the best Hannah episode. Yes. (laughs) But, yeah, it just didn't do it for me. But, you know, I've always been with Vincent Nigel Murray. After about the third time I saw him, I always was kind of bracing myself for him to get old that mm-hmm. the random facts thing would just get tiresome. And amazingly, they figured out other things to do with Vincent Nigel Murray that is just as amusing. And it's kind of like by doing that idea that the Bones or the Squid Squad broke up for a year or a couple of months was like a great reset button to all of the interns. So we've got this whole new backstory now with Vincent Nigel Murray winning on Jeopardy and making some poor choices after that. And the results of that are just getting us some great material with his character. So I've really got to give John Francis Daly, who worked on this episode, and the other people involved with Bones, 
props for still making this character interesting and hilarious without having to rely on his regular quirk of being the guy filled with random facts. I really have to give him a lot of credit with these intern characters. They're reoccurring, but they're developed in a way that they still remain just as fascinating as the main characters. And I've got to give them a lot of credit with that. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, I just saw a pilot, and I can't remember which one it was, that the actor who plays Vincent Nigel Murray was a important character in that show. So I do think that his time on Bones may be coming to a end, just for that fact. But because he is only every couple episodes on Bones, maybe not, because he can still work his shooting schedule so that he could come in and do some scenes on Bones and still get back and do his full-time gig on, I think it's a Canadian show. I'm not 100%, so don't quote me on that. I just saw him and I was like, ooh! (laughs) But yeah, I totally agree with you, though, that when they did the reset at the beginning of this year, all of the uh, interns, that was brilliant, and it worked magically. And today was the first time we really got into Vincent Nigel Murray's new backstory. Like, we knew about the Jeopardy thing, but they didn't really talk much about his loss of all that money and why he was back, which this one definitely jumped into. And I think if we see him again in the season, we'll even get a little bit more, which will be interesting. Well, we might even get some depth to his character. I think so. Again, it's still the possibility with them losing some of these actors. I think... The guy that plays Fisher, I think the actor's name is like Joel David Moore. I think he's going to be very hard to hold on to as well, especially since yeah, he was in Avatar. Kind of exploded. Yeah, yeah. He, he kind of exploded with Avatar and some other projects. So I think you're absolutely right that we've probably seen the end of him. So we may be going back and forth between Daisy and Wendell for a while until maybe they find new actors that come in. Or something like that. I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, or Clark might show up again. Right. Um, though, now that he's opening up more, and, like, I don't know, Clark doesn't seem to have the same appeal as when he was just always flustered by other people. <laughs> yeah, that was Clark's about, stitch. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that was his, his thing, and that was what made him funny in my mind. And now that he's gone a 180, I don't like him as much as possibly before. So, I don't know. Yeah, well, this definitely this episode was the Vincent Nigel Murray show. It was. And that part, don't get me wrong, that part of this episode, I'm going to say it for the third time, was what I did like about this this episode. Right. And the Chupacabra thing just didn't catch me. And then right. the killer at the end, it was a complete accident. And then the only reason it was bad was because they covered it up and made it look like a chupacabra attack to drive up business you know it wasn't like it was cold-blooded murder or a passionate crime it was an accident that they turned into fraud uh, that just other, didn't right excite me what are you gonna say what what the thing i i do i mean the mystery was like kind of i don't want to say predictable but it, it did spark our interest but at the same time mm-hmm. i really liked how the mystery or at least the debate that surrounded it with Bones and Booth, really kind of brought out this idea of Booth kind of acting as the wise man character to Bones. Like, there's been this trend with this episode 
and the episode the week before where he's almost like kind of teaching Bones a lesson of the week. Yeah. And I know you're going to laugh at this, but he's almost like functioning as Bones is Yoda. Almost <laughs> teaching her what she needs to do to have a relationship. Yes. It, um, in a sense, she's done a lot of growing on her own, but she may have gotten to a point where she needs that external stimulus from Booth to continue that growth. And I think that's going to start being what brings Booth back towards being ready for and showing she's ready for is that they're both continuing to grow and grow together and she's going to be growing more emotionally and he's going to be growing more accepting, I think. And that's going to be what we see next. Well, they're growing towards being more open to each other's views on the world. Yes. Like, they still argue, but it's like, okay, I, I'm going to listen to your idea. Where at the beginning of the series, they were at each other's throats. You know, Bones was like, no way can I be personable. And Booth was like, no way I can be scientific. And now they both seem to be more open to each other's world. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And some fans, you know, they're dogging it, and they're complaining to a certain extent that they think the relationship has lost its flair because it's went that way and things like that. And I don't feel that way at all. I just feel like it's evolved and this show is reaching an end. And at that point, you kind of have to get rid of or take away a little bit the fire or the pursuit of them getting together. Now it's kind of at the point where they're letting their guards down and coming together. And again, I still think the show possibly next season, especially if it's the end, is going to get more hot and heavy and have more of that sexual tension as they get closer to having a relationship. But I don't think either one of them are at that point right now. I think they've both been hurt, and I think they need to heal a bit before we can get there, and we're in the healing process right now. So I feel like the fans need to be a little more patient with this. So it feels more natural. Yes, and I think they can only last one season together. If that, be a partial season that they're actually together. And it may only be in the finale that they ultimately get together. Although I think we deserve maybe a little bit more than that as fans. Right. But no more than a half a season, I don't think. Oh, no. I I think that half a season might be almost too much. But we need at least a couple episodes to see the payoff. I always feel like series where they get together at the very end, while it's very dramatic and it leaves it open to interpretation and you can have whatever you want to happen as a viewer because it's your own imagination can go wild. But at the same time, I like to see them show a little bit. I always hate at the end of the movie when they get together and it's like the story's over and you're like, oh, I wanted to see more. Right. <laughs> So I'm hoping we get a little bit more with Bones because, you know, we, we've, been, we've been watching this show for quite a few years and we want that payoff, you know? Definitely. And I don't want it to be real quick and done is what I'm, I guess I'm getting at. Exactly. I'm definitely with you on that call. So is, does that cover everything you want to talk about with Bones, Nico? Absolutely everything. All right. Very good because I want to get started on this great episode of Fringe that we had this week. They lysergic acid dimethothide. I think I butchered the name of that. So we're just going to go with the title being 
L-A-D. The presence of William Bell's consciousness in Olivia's body threatens to displace her mind permanently unless Walter and Peter take extreme measures. If you can look past this episode being simply a giant acid trip, you'll see that it was pretty darn cool. As removing Dr. Bell's consciousness from Olivia's body causes the Fringe team to go inside Olivia's mind in order to save her life. However, before Key heads down this trip on the rabbit hole, Peter gets to join in on the Walter Bishop experience as he has to take LSD for his consciousness to shift inside of Olivia's mind. And as a result of this, we get a hilarious comment from a tripped-out Peter about how Broyles looks like an observer. You're bald. I think he's an observer. Speaking of Broyles, he ends up joining in on what I like to call the Walter Bishop experience as well, as he cleans up a pile of sugar cubes laying around in Walter's lap, which in reality is LSD. And at first, the trip down Broyles was kind of funny, especially when he was amazed by the spirals going around Walter's licorice. I never understood why Walter was so drawn to licorice. But look at it. The swirl. It's Bernini's spiral altar at St. Peter. Does it end? But then things get kind of serious as his hallucinations cause him to reveal to Astrid that he's been traumatized by seeing the dead body of his doppelganger on the other side, basically describing it as the Grim Reaper. As for the journey into the center of Olivia, things go all inception, as Olivia's mind uses the people that exist within her dream world, including variations of her stepfather, Anita Sharp, to kill, or in other words, force Peter and Dr. Bishop out of her consciousness. But that being said, as impressive as it was to see the people behind the scenes of Fridge bring the epicness of the great Christopher Nolan movie, Inception, to the TV screen through having Peter and Dr. Bishop be chased by an entire city of people led by Olivia's abusive stepfather and dropping the dream version of Nina down the elevator shaft which shows how the writers feel about that character, I felt kind of shortchanged. Because normally with Fridge, when it comes to something imaginative, like going inside of a character's mind, the writers of the show normally come up with a completely original idea. But the fact that this concept was based off of a well-known movie kind of cheapened the episode a bit in my mind. However, just as that thought crossed my mind, the writers of Fridge once again proved my complaints totally wrong as Dr. Bishop and Peter tracking down Dr. Bell causes things to get a bit more animated. Literally. Really? Why are you a cartoon? I'd ask yourselves the same question. As Fridge becomes Fringe the Animated Series, with everything in Olivia's consciousness turning into a cartoon. Yes, I know, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but switching to animation during the scenes that took place in Olivia's head gave us something that the fans of the movie Inception always wanted to see. A dream world where anything is possible. And we got that here by the characters of the show contending with situations that we would only see if Fridge was made into a movie, such as Peter fighting zombies on the rooftop of one of the World Trade Center's towers, Dr. Bell flying one of the Zeppelins 
that exists on the other side. And a vertigo-inducing sequence where Dr. Bishop is sucked out of the Zeppelin into midair and battles a mysterious villain in a white t-shirt with an X on it who causes to wake up and exit Olivia's consciousness. Moving forward, even though Fringe got animated, that doesn't mean the writers threw character development out the window. It's Dr. Bell, who was voiced by Leonard Nimoy, within Walter's consciousness, tells Dr. Bishop that he is fully capable of dealing with Walter on his own, because Walter has humility, and that will help him make the right choices when the time comes. At the same time, even though almost the entire episode is spent searching for Olivia, being inside of her head gives her character a lot of development, as the place where Olivia feels the safest is when she was a little girl, before her father died, showing us that Olivia views herself as a scared little girl. This in turn means the manifestations that have been attacking the Fringe team in this episode are not a result of Olivia's mind protecting itself, but a result of her deepest fears being unleashed. Eventually, using deductive reasoning, Dr. Bell and Peter manage to attract out Olivia in her childhood home. But as soon as Peter finds Olivia, her consciousness creates a manifestation of military vehicles that run Peter over, causing him to wake up and freak out about losing Olivia, which clearly shows Peter is capable of going to extreme lengths to keep her safe, including probably going to the point of going inside of Walter and its machine. Going back inside the dream world, just as Dr. Bell's consciousness is going to be wiped out by the manifestation of Olivia's fears, which have taken the form of a military battalion, Olivia manages to get the battalion to stop attacking, basically symbolizing the fact that she has developed the strength to overcome her fears, giving Dr. Bell the opportunity to talk Olivia into waking up. And as Olivia wakes up, Peter's excitement that she has come back to him becomes bittersweet, as it is discovered they were unable to transfer Dr. Bell's consciousness into a computer, leaving a distraught Dr. Bishop to face the realization that his oldest friend is now gone for good. Finally, in the last scene of this episode, the writers of this episode give an excellent explanation as to why everything within Olivia's mind was a cartoon, because she has still maintained her talent for drawing that she developed as a little girl. However, just as we think the sight of Olivia drawing in the scene and being overly cheerful when she talks to Peter means that we're going to like this overconfident Olivia, we discover that she might have become a little too overconfident, as Olivia shows Peter a drawing that she did of the guy in her consciousness, who is wearing a t-shirt with an X on it, nonchalantly telling him that this is the man who's going to kill her. So now that this revelation revolving around the guy who we're now going to call the X-Man has me leaning towards the fact that Olivia might be the one who dies, in my theory, that both Olivia's cannot exist at the end of the series. I'm going to hand things over to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this very unique episode of Fringe. I loved this episode for many reasons. Despite it being essentially Fringe's take on Inception, like you mentioned before, it was even a step further when they went all Scanner Darkly cartoonish and was actually pretty badass. Yes. Also, I really like the way Olivia tested Peter in the house before she came up to him as the little girl, and that only Peter would know it wasn't her 
that was great. That was perfect. Genius on the writer's parts. Oh, oh, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I think it showed that Olivia and Peter are becoming the real deal, you know. You wouldn't expect someone to be able to tell that someone who looks exactly like you is not you unless they really know you and really can tell it's you. And I think this also was a test of whether he would recognize her or Bolivia. And so that took it even deeper in their newfound rekindling of their relationship. And I really liked that. I also agree with you that the scene where Olivia stands up to her fears and grows as a character and becomes strong enough to overcome those fears and move on in her life was one of the best scenes of this great episode. And it wasn't like the most exciting scene or the most visually stunning scene, but for the overall where the future of this show is going to go, I think it probably was the most important scene. Right. Of the series. And of the, yeah, possibly of the series thus far. And so that was kind of really awesome. Yeah. But just as we're thinking that things with Peter and Olivia are going to be get back on track and everything, she drops that bomb that the guy locked up in her subconscious is the guy she thinks is going to kill her. And your idea, we've been kind of throwing back and forth. We said that only one can survive. And now you're thinking, Olivia's got to die. And that's brilliant. I think that's a great theory. And well, they've changed my know, mind completely. Every week, we're going back and forth. And, and this is the most convincing evidence we've had that, no, it's got to be Olivia that dies at the end. Otherwise, why would they have talked about the guy who's going to kill her? This X-Man, as you coined the term. Yeah. So we talk about it every week. This show totally blows your mind every time you watch it. And to yeah. say this is the best episode of this season, which has been an amazing season, is not an over-exaggeration of the quality of this episode. I thought this could possibly be the best episode of this series. Yeah, and it all took place inside Olivia's head, which amazed me because of how much we disliked the character last year. <laughs> Yes. And now we're like, the episode inside her head was the greatest episode of the series. Yes. That Two years ago, incredible. if you said that to me, I would have told you you were smoking crack. Yes. Or you were on LSD, to, to be more apropos to this, uh, this episode. Right. And the fact that they did it. And the other thing was, I could not believe how confident Olivia was at the end of that episode. Where she's like, oh, this is the guy who kills me. Yeah, yeah. It made sense, but it was really offsetting to me at the same time. Absolutely. Before this episode, she would not have been that forthcoming. She would not have been that right. open to share. She would not have been confident enough to even acknowledge his existence, let alone talk about it out loud. So that not only showed her newfound confidence, but how much that standing up to her own fears has already changed her. But now this is formed another crackpot theory in my head. That overconfidence that she had, it almost seemed like too much overconfidence. Okay. Like, so something's going to knock her down a peg? Almost as if Dr. Bell's presence isn't entirely gone. Okay. Not that he would still possess her, but I think fragments of his personality 
may have remained inside of Olivia. Okay, so his consciousness is gone, but maybe parts of him were imprinted on her or incorporated into her. Right. Almost as if he left a seed of thought in her brain. Yes. <laughs> to go back to the Inception reference. And I'm glad that they made her too overconfident because she still has a flaw. Yes. So it makes sense because now what you're going to have is you're going to have Peter going, oh my God, you're going to die. I've got to stop this. Uh-huh. And that's going to create conflict in the relationship because Olivia's not going to want to protect it. Yeah, that's a great theory. I'm right there with you on that. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So it's amazing. No matter what change they make to this show, there's always another flaw. There's always another hitch. There's always another problem to keep you watching. And the fact that this episode is able to spawn such strong debates where people who may be on one side of the spectrum and be very fiercely on that side will totally change their opinion the following week. I've never seen a show that's being able to formulate such a change in the fans on what they want to happen. And it just goes to show what we say every week about the quality of these writers. They are some of the best on TV because they can keep doing that, can keep changing things on us, can keep throwing curveballs at us that challenge them as writers and make it all plausible, all fit. It all comes together in the end. And that just shows the quality of what they're doing. Well, and again, I know the thing we always praise this show is writing. But the fact that they came up with the idea and went with that animation in the episode was just very impressive. It really was. I thought they might go even more difficult where they would have Peter in camera and yeah. Walter and Billy as cartoons, and that would have been even harder for them to do visually. Right. But I didn't mind when they all went cartoon. I actually really liked it. It was kind of cool. It made sense in the context where they did it at. Yes. And again, as I said, we got to see things that we wouldn't normally get to see on the show. Like, I doubt we'll ever get to see a character in real life fly one of those Zeppelins. Yeah, probably not. And Or fight uh, zombies on the roof of the World Trade Center towers. Yeah, that was awesome. That was uh, not only to zombie movies, but to, like, Call of Duty fans and people who love the zombie genre in general. Essentially, Peter took on a zombie flick in yeah. this movie, or in this uh, episode, which well, is kind of... You know, you wouldn't see that. Obviously, you just... Well, actually, we could have seen possibly a zombie-esque outbreak, but it would have been so hard to equate with everything else in the storyline that we right. probably wouldn't have seen it. And so doing it in her mind was... Well, we even fun. got a thought bubble. Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. I, I felt like they were kind of giving a shout-out to all the people that they know are fans of their show, like comic book people, yeah. to the sci-fi genre, to the horror genre, to everybody who watches this show comes from maybe different backgrounds or different interests, and they were kind of throwing out a little bit of, hey, we know uh, who our audience is. We got comic book fans. We got sci-fi fans. We got horror fans. We got shippers. We got all this stuff, and so... I thought it was kind of a shout-out to all the different groups that come together to become the Fringe fans. Yes, most definitely. And the fact that they were able to keep it under wraps, 
I had no idea what that was going to happen. Yeah, I had not heard anything either. And so the fact that they were able to just catch us totally off guard with this and make my jaw hit the floor, that was awesome. Now, I Go ahead. I loved Broyles. He yes. acid trick. <laughs> he was hilarious during his hallucinations, like when he was whistling at the little cartoon bird on Dr. Bishop's shoulder. That was brilliant. That made me laugh. But at the same time, it got really, really dark and serious with him, yes. too. Yeah, when he was talking about having seen the death of his doppelganger. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Woo. That freaked me out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I thought the, everything about this episode was brilliant, just top-notch, and I loved it. it. Like I said, it was the best episode of this season for me, and possibly the whole series. So. Well, and Astrid, how she played <laughs> that scene with Broyles was great. She had a great line with Dr. Bishop, too, when he called her Astro. Yes. And <laughs> she came back with, what did she call him? Astro, are we ready? Just about, Wally. Another instance of me actually laughing, watching the show and laughing out loud. So that was pretty awesome. Well, Dr. Bishop liking to watch episodes of Zoom on his iPad is pretty awesome, too. Yeah, the product placement was obvious on that. (laughs) For both the movie and I think it was like a Samsung uh, tablet or something. So, yeah. Well, I could see Dr. Bishop liking Zoom. And wanting to build the crafts that they come up with on that show. Yes. yes. <laughs> I didn't put it past them. I was like, oh, he likes watching that. I mean, they had him watching SpongeBob in the pilot. So, <laughs> you know. Well, especially with his hallucinatory drug abuse, um, watching SpongeBob is lots of bright, flashy colors. So <laughs> I wanted watching Red and Stimpy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, joy. I think Ren and Stimpy doesn't fit because he was in the um, asylum during Ren and Stimpy's run. <laughs> so it wouldn't have been like he had watched it previously. Um, That's true. Now, they could do something like where somebody new came in and saw him watching something like SpongeBob, and he said, oh, if you like SpongeBob, you should watch Ren and Stimpy. Or, right. you know, if you like something, SpongeBob and Ren and Stimpy are a little bit too far apart right. to be a natural connected, but something like that could work. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think this episode might be the last fun one we're going to get for Fridge for a while because I think things are going to get really intense, especially when the finale episode is titled something like The Day They Died or something like that. So I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of death and destruction to come for this show. So everybody sit and enjoy the way things are now, because I have a feeling it's going to get pretty trippy up in here. That I'm not talking about an LSD acid trip. I'm talking about the end of the world kind of deal here. Doomsday itself. So this is going to get a little crazy here, folks. Yeah, they'll still be excellent episodes. They're just not going to be as fun as this right. one They are going to be excellent episodes, and again... Nico and I, what we think that our theories today are probably going to be about a hundred different directions different by the time we get to that point. Yeah. So with the fact that we started talking about Red and Stimpy, I think that we've pretty much digressed on this discussion. So are you good with everything you want to say on your end there, Nico, about Fred? I 
I think we hit everything that was uh, important about this episode. All right. Well, that's fantastic. So, again, everybody, we're going to move on to our Smallville section where Michael is going to be joining us. So here we go with our discussion on the Smallville episode, Kent. The Earth 2 Clark Luther sends Clark Kent to that world where he meets the alternate Jonathan Kent. While Lois turns to Emil for help to recover her husband-to-be, Clark Luther seeks out Pat and demands her obedience. All right, and real quick before I get things started with my summary for the episode, Michael and I have a lot to say about this. Again, it's the end. It's the last time we're going to get to talk about this show for, you know, a decent amount of time. And again, it's the last time we're going to get to talk about new episodes of this show. So we're going to take our time a bit with this one, but to speed things up and kind of to keep you guys from getting bored, I'm going to read a couple parts of my summary then we're going to break, and Michael and I are going to discuss it a little bit, and then I will go back to the summary. So basically what we're going to be doing is you're going to get our summary and the discussion, a combination of that, together. So we're going to try this. This is a new approach to how we normally do things on this show, so we'll see if it works, but let's just take it away now. As Smallville begins, what I like to call the Final Five, not to be confused with Fast Five, a movie starring The Rock and Vin Diesel that is currently in theaters, we get our sense that this is the beginning of the end for Smallville. With a playful opening scene between Clark and Lois the Daily Planet that ended with our hero revealing Martha gave him the deed to the Kent farm so he could sell it. However, in my opinion, before selling the farm, it might be a good idea for Clark to tell the next owners to install a security system because guess who suddenly appears at the barn? Clark Luther from Earth 2. And before Clark even gets the opportunity to digest the possibility of selling the farm or have Lois kick his bulletproof butt for forcing her to deal with a realtor who's trying to get them to sell the farm, Clark gets sent to Earth 2 by some mad super speed skills from Clark Luther. From here, as we are transported to Earth 2, we along with our buddy Clark are hit with the realization that things in this parallel world have gone from bad to worse as we witness the funeral of Earth 2, Oliver Queen, whose death is being mourned by a heartbroken Earth 2 Lois, who reveals that her husband was killed by Clark Luther, but revealing that kryptonite is his weakness. Again, even though I felt really, really bad for Earth 2 Lois, and it was very hard to see her that sad, what truly, what, what really made this world truly desolate was when, much to Clark's surprise, a new player comes into the playing field at the funeral in the form of an enraged Jonathan Kent. Now with that, we're going to stop and get Michael's thoughts on the selling of the farm just all this barrage of images that we were hit with as we arrived in Earth 2 at this graveyard. So where were you at, Michael, at this point in the episode? At this point in the episode, I was very... How should I put it? I was a little distraught, actually, because I didn't think 
here, Jonathan would be that um, outer control. Yeah. Because we hardly, we hardly ever saw Earth one Jonathan out of control, and now we're seeing this alternate version, and he's, like, really mad. It was shocking. It was very shocking. But, um, back at the beginning of the episode, actually, I have to talk about Clark Luther and Clark's talk in the world. Yeah, that's cool. Because when Clark Luther appeared on screen, after Clark got off the phone with Martha, I was very, um, I was very happy, and I was a little bit anxious, because I wanted to know what was going to happen, but I was very happy because we hadn't seen a scene like this since Bizarro was destroyed back in season seven. Right. And to see Tom Welling play an evil Clark, based with the real Clark, it's always great, it always works really well. Because he has such a wide range of acting abilities, it's yeah. amazing. Just unbelievable, and it, um, it gets better every time they've done it on the show. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. It's, he's very good, very good. But, um, I did also like the Connor reference. Yes, that was that very nice as well. Yeah, and I have to go back even a little further in the beginning of the episode to Clark having the deed to attempt fun. Yeah. And, and, well, getting the realtor into sell and all that. Here's my problem with that. One, where is Martha going to live after she retires? And where is Connor going to live when he has to go to Smallville Hive? And two, in Homecoming, Future Lewis mentions that they still own the Kent Farm. Well, you know, they could decide against it. I guess, but it, it's even set in stone in the future and right. all that. So that's my question. Yeah. I don't understand that. Like that. That's, that's true. And you know what? To be honest, they might have not thought of that. Uh, I hope they think about it before the finale. Right. The, the idea I'm going with on that concept, normally when, when a TV show comes to the end, one of the main sets that, you know, is very important to the main characters, something happens to it. It either gets sold or destroyed or blown up or something happens to it. And that's just a thing that shows do at the end. And so Smallville, they wanted to go with the farm. Now again, we've got that little time travel conundrum that's going on. But I think in the end, you know, it may surprise us who buys the farm at the end. Bruce Wayne. You know, yeah. I mean, they could sell it to somebody where they could easily get it back. Or maybe Clark's mom something happens and she decides she's going to stay there with Connor. Yeah. And he, and he realizes, okay, maybe this is a bad idea to sell the farm, per se. Maybe I should just hand it over to someone that could use it or needs that experience again. And obviously that would be Connor. That, yeah. That'd be Connor. And then always, Clark could always go back there whenever he needed to. 
And then there's also a place for Kara to stay if she needs some place as well. And that's, that's another possibility. Like, maybe she takes the farm. I mean, I, I think we'll get our yeah. answers on all of that in that final Supergirl episode, to be honest. Okay. In the penultimate episode? Yes. Yes. The pre-finale right. episode. Um, the other thing with me at this scene is just that Lois, the Earth 2 Lois. Like, she just... She's just strong. I know. That was just... Erica Durant was great in that scene, but it was just awful. It was just awful. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, it just... I did like... Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I did like the, the realization that she goes, oh, wait, this is that guy. Right. This, this is the other one. Exactly. And that, that was nice. Yeah, I agree with that. I... There was nice, and that was the cool thing about this episode is that even though this world was really dark, we kept getting little glimmers of hope, mm-hmm. which was that was neat to see. Right. And it was yeah, also I, I go go ahead. I, I was just, and I agree. Go ahead. Uh, it was nice to see that. You know, it, I think it added to the intensity that we're going to get in these last five episodes showing us what's at stake if Clark doesn't become Superman. Mm-hmm. So that'll hype it up, I think, is a nice way. I think that was the main goal of this episode was just hyping it. And speaking of hyping this episode, before we get into the epicness that was the meeting between Clark Kent and his father's doppelganger, I'm going to head back to our Earth for us to talk about Clark Luther. And the last time we saw Clark Luther, Michael and I came to this consensus that we still kind of joke about it, is what made Tom Welling's performance and his character extremely chilling was the way he yelled at Tess during the scene in Luther where he attacked the Watchtower. But this time what I felt... Yes. This time what I felt what made Clark Luther really frightening in this episode was his subtlety when he tried to seduce both Lois and Tess in this episode. By, like, going up to them and, like, being really shady and, like, whispering in their ear and using his super speed to, like, flick around in the shadows. Plus, on top of that, that whole scene at the Ace of Clubs where Clark Luther uses the fact that Tess is in love with our Clark to turn to the dark side, it really just made me shudder. Especially when I kind of have this, like, image of Clark Luther eating that steak while asking Tess to help him kill Lionel is like that's just like engraved to my head but I keep seeing it over and over again because it it was just that graphic and it just showed like just that Clark Luther is like this just filled with like raw savage power and he's very unpredictable and it's just chilling to know that this guy is out there and he can just snap anyone's neck at like a moment's notice and it was just really creepy and how he was almost like holding Tess hostage by just having his hand around her neck because she knew it could stop and he went, oh my god it was, ew, it's freaky and it, I am going to give Tom Welling props for being able to be that freaky but yet turn right around in this episode and be 
Superman. It's just unbelievable that transformation that he's able to do, and it's just oh, I can't say enough about him. That superherohype.com, you are full of crap saying he's a bad actor. Because you watch this episode, there's no doubt that he's great. Again, somebody may say I'm blowing smoke, but that's how I feel. What did you yeah, think? That's how I feel. Okay. I, I, I couldn't really have said it any better. Okay. I, um, the one thing, though, that I can't also say, though, is that Clark Luther not only freaks me out because of the study and all that, and whispering in people's ears and super speeding in the shadows, but it also freaks me out how much control over the situation he has. Yes. And he knows it, and that's what makes him dangerous. That is awesome. That is an awesome concept. It's awesome. That's Michael. No, I, well, it's but scary, it's, but it's awesome the way you put that. Yeah. So, that's, yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom Wally is awesome. And the one other thing I liked is that little smirk that uh, he pulled off as Clark Luther. Especially when he was yeah. checking out Lois. That was just, that spoke volumes. And then that thing he does with his finger. Yes. That's just weird. And and it shows just how far this guy has come in 10 years with this show. Yeah, because, you know, the whole show has been about Clark's journey coming Ultraman and taking over his Oh, wait. No, it hasn't. Right. That would be a very scary show. That would be a frightening show. Alternate Smallville, season one, premiering 2011. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Supernatural would not be the scariest show on CW anymore. No, it would not be. Anyway, moving back to Earth 2, the gut-wrenching scenes continue, with us being forced to watch in horror as the alternate world Jonathan Kent literally beats the crap out of Clark, which was hard to watch. And he basically reveals that he's only a shadow of the man that we knew as Clark's father. Through the meteor shower basically destroying his land and causing his marriage to the Earth 2 version of Martha Kent to disintegrate, which made me sad. And again, as hard as it was for us to watch this broken down Jonathan Kent, it was absolutely necessary for this story because it literally allowed Clark to go full circle using the very lessons he was taught from our world's Jonathan Kent to make this Jonathan better. And I've got to say with this scene, I was literally choked up with pride because I felt like I've connected with Clark more so than any other character on television to this point that I feel like I've gone on the journey throughout these past 10 seasons of Smallville with Clark. Almost as if I played a key role in his life like Chloe. In other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is like Clark inspiring the Earth 2 Jonathan to make things right with Martha and going on about how his father was a hero just shows what an awesome guy he is. And I just love how the writers on this show are able to give me this sense that as we part ways in a few weeks, I personally, and Michael and everyone else that has watched it, have had a hand in making Clark that guy, a.k.a. Superman. And I hope if Clark actually existed, he would know that he has played a big part in making me 
and probably a lot of other people out there, the men and women that they are today as well. And Michael, what did you have to say about these things with Jonathan? Because they were just very, very powerful, and they'll probably be remembered as we look back on this show. Um, they will definitely be remembered. No one will see this episode will ever forget it. Yeah. Because it was such a twist that it wasn't even funny. Like, it was, it was really scary. I mean, people think Clark Luther was scary. How Jonathan acted, I thought was pretty freaky. Yeah. That's for sure. The way he beat Clark down, but Clark just kept trying and trying, and he knew he was going to break through to him, and when he did, all he kept saying were the things that his father said to him. Right. And Jonathan, I think, realized that. Yeah. And he realized that, wait a minute, that, that's what I would say. But obviously in a different context, but right. still. And that's obviously ended up breaking through them at the end. Now, when Clark was taken from us too, right when he was about to hug Jonathan. Yeah. Like I said before we started the podcast, I yelled at my TV and I told it to put him back because that was terrible. It was just like season five's boys where right. Clark was dead and Lana injects him, bringing him back to life as he leaves his dad right before. Yeah. It was awful. But, yeah, and for me, it was like, like when he got taken away, I felt like, oh man, they're going to build up to a bigger moment between Clark and the real Jonathan. Like, I mm -hmm. feel like that set up that desire for us to have Clark talk with his dad one last time before the show comes to a close. Well, I think we will, definitely, but I also think but it's a possibility that um, Jonathan will not only just speak with Clark, but I think from what we've seen in the finale trailer, maybe even with Martha, and bring his whole family closer, I guess. Yeah, that would be really, really cool uh, to see, especially since John Schneider is such a big presence on this show. I mean, I know he hasn't been mm -hmm. on the show for five seasons, but still... He just, he's a colossal well, presence to be on the show. Right. Well, his death caused not only Clark to be distant and Clark to want to become the man he is today more, but it also really did throw Martha in the senator's seat. And she's been gone for a few seasons because right. of it. And that's her way of dealing with it. But if she comes back and they all three of the scene, that's closure for the entire Right. family and for all of us fans as well so yeah and this scene which I mean you were just so emotionally invested in it and what was really freaky for me I kept having Marlon Brando's voice play in my head with that line about uh, from the Superman the movie where it's like about isn't it about the the son becomes the father the son, father becomes the son yeah that's so fun that was just playing in my head over and over again during that scene that's, that's a very interesting way to look at it, Dan, because I never thought about that, honestly. It got me excited. It was just like, oh, my God, this is like, 
this is the visual interpretation of that line. I wanted to do. Yeah, I think they went back and watched a lot of Superman the movie to put some stuff together. I think they went back and watched everything related to Superman to put this season yeah. together because they've asked us of everything. And, and that's really what it should be. It should be a culmination of everything that's come before to give us this Superman. Exactly. Now all I need is that JLU scene with Harper's dark side, and I'll be happy. Right. <laughs> and it is, it is. This is a capper on that. Yeah. Uh, on <laughs> this, the past century of Superman. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Superman's only existed for, you know, essentially one decade. But now we're into a new decade for Superman. And he might still be around at the end of that one, too. Right. So this top one really is the camper on that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So anyway... It makes me wonder what's going on in the next 10 years for him, I mean. Yes, and, and how the movie's going to turn out a lot of things. So with that, we're going to mm -hmm. continue... So with that, we're going to continue on. Basically, Emil manages to repair the mirror box that Clark destroyed at the end of Luther to bring Clark back to our Earth. But of course, once Clark realizes he's back to home sweet home, our hero races off to stop Clark Luther. Although that's not before another chilling scene that practically screamed descent. That's the episode where Lionel is killed by Lex. As Clark Luther takes Tess out of the Luther Corp office window. But as she's about to fall to the ground below, Clark manages to super speed in and get Tess to a safe location. But just because she dodged the bullet this week doesn't make me feel that Tess will escape the Grim Reaper before the end of the series. Due to my belief that her feelings for Clark will ultimately become her downfall. At this point, with the damsel in distress now safe, we get the sense that it's going to be odd like Donkey Kong between our man Clark and Clark Luther. But surprisingly, Clark just lures his evil half to the fortress and uses the belief instilled upon him by meeting the Earth 2 Jonathan Kent as a means to convince Clark Luther to look for the good inside himself. Because even though they both are from different worlds and were adopted by different people, they are still essentially the same person. Now with that, Clark Luther is sent back to his world where he decides to reconnect with Jor-El under our Clark's guidance to show people what he can give them in order to change their minds about the, wrong, the wrongs he has done to them in the past. Again, with this whole confrontation, there are some of you out there who probably really wanted a fight between Clark and Clark Luther. And my response to that would normally be they're trying to save money for the finale. But this time, I think having this huge fight would have went against the way this show has revolutionized superhero stories by showing us that a hero's greatest weapon is not their powers, but their ability to talk down threats without always having to resort to a fight. And that right there is how Clark made me the man I am today. Because when I was in high school, at the exact same time Clark was, I had a bit of a temper, which is something I got over by the trials that Clark went through on Smallville, teaching me that there is an alternative to always feeling the need to fight. This is a lesson that will not only stay with me, 
but will also keep the memories of watching 10 years of this show alive. Speaking of keeping memories alive, another tearjerker in this episode was the lie that Clark said to Lois after coming to the consensus to sell the farm about it's not the place that makes the home through it summing up the episode beautifully and bringing a big smile to my face when Lois says that Clark is the Smallville who is her home because it sums up that the fact the title of the show Smallville doesn't refer to a town that was hit by a meteor shower in 1987, it refers to Clark, who Lois calls by the nickname of Smallville. Plus, I don't know about you, Michael, but I think it's fitting that the term Smallville, or the title Smallville for this show, is named after a guy who becomes a superhero, rather than a show. Plus, I don't know about you, Michael, but I think it's fitting that the term Smallville returns to Clark because I think people would much rather watch a show for 10 years about a guy who becomes a superhero with the nickname of Smallville rather than a show named after a town of creepy stalkers. <laughs> Which we think... Yes, we do think Smallville is a town of creepy stalkers minus the Kent family. Yes. Yeah. Finally, at the end of the episode, Emil mentions something to Tess about discovering gold kryptonite, and that it is capable of removing Clark's powers completely, making me believe that the final episode of the series is going to be about Clark being offered a chance to rid himself of his powers. And at first, I think he's going to accept the offer to avoid the darkness or dark side, making his powers a threat to the world. But then I think that Lex's return and other events will occur in the episode that will make Clark realize the world needs a Superman. A philosophy that also seems to encompass Earth 2, as the last scene of this episode proves that Clark was right about Clark Luther being the same as him deep down inside. With us seeing a glimpse of the Jonathan Kent that we once knew from our world in the Earth 2 Jonathan, as he goes to make amends with the destined love of his life, the Earth 2 Martha Kent. So with that, Michael, to wrap up this, I, I was, I'm curious. Do you kind of believe in what I said, that this show has made a huge impact on your life and it's kind of made you the person you are today? You know, I would definitely agree with that. Okay. Because, I mean, I started watching this in 2006, as you know, because you introduced right. me to it. But, um... Ever since then, I've been different, I want to say, and I've wanted to be a better person. I mean, I'm not right. saying that just to say it. Like, it's um, it's legitimately true. I've wanted to be a better person watching the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely shaped my physical appearances. I wear red and blue all the time. Yeah. But it shapes me mentally as well, trying to think to do the right thing always and not the wrong. I mean, it's not only Smallville that's done that, but it's definitely been a building point. Yeah, it's like intertwined with what's going on with your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what it's supposed to be. Right. It's it's a it's a factor that's made it that way. But again, like with Superman, 
I, I think this show's essentially done what that character in the DC Universe does, which is make people better. Like, I feel like I'm mm-hmm. a better person because of watching Smallville. So let me just say it this way. It's somewhat no other Superman or any superhero media, yeah. whether it's comics, movies, TV, whatever, has done, and it's really changed people. So nothing else has done that. I mean, really. I could make a big... I, I could say, like, Superman the movie. But again, that was before you and I were around. Yeah, I could say that, but at the same time, I mean, you have a connection to Clark in that movie, but not really what Smallville gives you. You you do at the beginning, and then once he becomes full on Superman, you kind of lose it. Mm-hmm. Because then it's kind of all so, Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's how I put it. It's really changed everything. It really so, is. I think it's changed the comics as well. Well, the comics are starting to be shaped after, the, after it as well. Yeah. Which is nice. I mean, Superman to Earth. I mean, the part of Secret Origin. Right. So. And I'm, I'm sure this Man of Steel movie will also be heavily influenced by Smallville, seeing as how not only is. Um, well, not only is it coming right after Smallville, but also the villain is Seminole Zod. So that is how Yeah. Well, they got a perfect setup for it in a couple of weeks. Exactly. And now, wait for Dominion. And now, wait. Not wait. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, about the fight scene at the end, did, did you see what the point I was making about that? I mean, do you agree with that to a certain extent? Yeah, I yeah I do, and if, if it's okay, I want to expand on it a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. All right, so yeah, I definitely agree with what you said, and I also think that if Clark would have fought Ultraman, yeah, that that not only would it have done what you said, but it would also totally cancel out his whole, whole argument, yeah. and would have shown Ultraman that, hey, this guy's just like me to a certain extent, and that's not what Clark was trying to do at all. Right. So, I mean, if it was season nine, I could see it happening, because Clark was in a dark spot then. Right. But this season, no way. I think he would have just attacked uh, Ultraman if it was season nine. Yeah, I do too. Season nine is a whole different animal, really. Yeah. Because I mean, as season nine was great, it's definitely one of my three top three favorite seasons. Right. But as of season eight, Clark kind of was sure of himself and kind of knew what he was doing. Season nine, after Jimmy died and Lois was missing, and all the yeah. <laughs> I didn't really know what to do. But in season nine, the whole point of it was his progress and him becoming like he was in season eight, back in season ten. But I think in season okay. ten, but season eight, Clark has been so expanded on that it's 
totally different from how he was, but in a good okay. way. Yeah, because I, I thought it was important that Clark talked down Ultraman. I did, like, fight him. You know, he gave mm-hmm. him that chance for redemption. Now, again, I know you have your argument that, well, it's probably not going to happen because it's too fast and that, and how do we know that that Jarrell is good and all that stuff. But I think Clark, in terms of our world, did what he needed to do to stop him. Yeah, and after talking about this, my opinion about Ultraman not being able to be redeemed has been shaped a little bit. Yeah. I'm a little more lenient to it, but since I'm a purist, I'm still a little bit against it, so I'm kind of in the middle. Right. I can see either outcome. And I, and I think, again, with the finale coming, they want to make things positive and filled with hope. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the whole exactly. model they're saying right now for the finale is believe. So this was Clark believing that Ultraman could become a better person, like his dad. Because I think he believed... Well, Clark was definitely... Yeah, go ahead. Because I do. I, I think Clark believed, yes, if Jonathan in that world can become better and I can redeem him, that I can redeem the version of myself as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree. And now, again, I don't know like, what that's going to mean for Lex when he comes back in. Is Clark going to believe that again, too? Or no, is he gonna be I, don't th- I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. And I think mainly it's because of his dream that he had at the end of Season 9. Okay. Because Lois was very much against Lex in that dream. Right. And he knows Lois wouldn't just think that about someone. Right. And I also know that him and Lex, I mean, his final act with Lex was in Requiem. Yeah. And he took everything away from Clark. That's true. There's obvious other he was with the clone at the beginning of the scene. And even though he could redeem Alexander, the younger clone, and turn him into Connor, yeah. that was different of how he was created, unlike the older clone of Lex, who was full-on Lex. Yeah. Well, again, they're going to have to... With Lex coming back, Clark's anger is going to be tempted and pushed. And he's going to have mm-hmm. to do something to show that he's above Lex. Well, he could do what he did in the third part of the first episode of Superman the Animated Series where he's just out the window. He's like, I'll be watching you do for Right. It, it could be something like that. But again, I still think that Lex thinks that they're on an even, even playing ground. You know, Clark, I mean, I think Clark believes that. Like, Clark needs to realize that he's above Lex. That he doesn't need to fear becoming him. I don't know if Clark thinks or say that he'll become Lex, but I do think he does think that if I am the epitome of good, then he is definitely the epitome of evil, sort of thing. Where they're exact opposites, right. and even though one might have powers, the other doesn't. They're equal in that sense. If that makes sense. But I, I think he feels. I think Clark feels bad that he's destined to become that person, though. I think he does, too. But remember, all the chances Clark gave Lex, all the times he tried. And I'm, I mean, right. Clark will still try. Clark will always try. Right. Superman, in 
in the comics tries if you've seen all stuff Superman right yeah yes no well I you, you broke yeah. up a little bit there oh I was just saying that I mean Superman always tries to be Lex Luthor right no matter what and also Superman he, he attempts and he does, but not without help. So, I mean, he'll always try to redeem Lex. Oh, I think he'll do that with anybody. Right. But he's going to know in the back of his mind that he isn't going to be saved. Right. Unless they're too crazy to be saved, like the Joker is a character. That would be an example. There's no saving him. He's gone. Pretty much. But, yeah. but Lex Luthor, I think he can somewhat be more reasoned with. Right. And lastly, what did you think of this gold kryptonite theory I threw out there? I know I'm probably totally off my rocker on it, but I just that came to mind and I just threw it out there. Well, I, I think it could very well work. Okay. But I think Clark is so sure of his destiny, like not to get copy or anything. Right. He isn't copy at all, I don't think, but I think he's so sure. That he isn't going to do that because I think we already, I feel like we already did that last season with Salvation. Well, you know, they may, like, Tess may bring it to him. Like, Tess Emile may say, we could get out of it doing this. And Clark's going to give him a whole spiel on why it, they, they shouldn't do that. Right. Because it, it really hits the theme of the show on the nose. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a feeling we're going to see Gold Crypt tonight soon. I don't think we will in Booster next week. Right. But I'm pretty, sh- I'm pretty sure we will in either the last three, Dominion, Prophecy, or Finale. But I'm hoping you'll get wrapped up with full Finale. So Prophecy, I'll guess, like what you said earlier, everything's going to be wrapped up by then. Right. I have a feeling it might be then. I mean, I feel like a big struggle on this show has made Clark Kent's wanting to fit in with his superpowers or just mm-hmm. wanting to fit in and being willing to give up the superpowers right. so you know I, I feel like the gold kryptonite is somehow going to be used to make him debate like what's the best course of action yeah and at the same time that makes sense but I don't think that that's going to happen. I mean, nothing against your theory. It makes perfect sense, but I don't think how they're going to make it go down. Now, do you think that theme, one of the themes of the, the finale is going to be about why the world needs a Superman? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Dark Side is obviously probably going to be the ultimate villain in the finale. Right. And he'll probably try and take over Earth and the people are going to need someone to look up to to believe in. Superman's going to beat him or start fighting him, and then the people will probably be on his side and either help or support him or do something to make him win. Well, it's going to be everybody at the end taking yeah. down Dark Side. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get Oliver, we're going to get Chloe, we're going to have the, the band get back together and beat this thing. Right. So, mm-hmm. this is be solid. We might even get some Connor in the finale. 
I hope so. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I hope we get Marsh Manhunter too. We haven't seen him all season except for that funeral. Yeah, I, I love some Justice League action. Yeah. Even if it's just little clips of them beating down Darkseid's pawn or parademons or something around the world, I don't Exactly. Well, Michael, I think we've talked everyone's ear off about Smallville enough. Um, oh, I think so. I'm going to warn you, you guys listening to the podcast, the episodes may be a little bit long for the next five weeks due to the hype surrounding Smallville, the finale. Um, it's a big deal to us here at this show that this show is going off after ten seasons, especially when we've watched it all the way through. So just be ready for long Smallville discussions. So with that, we're going to move on to Supernatural now with our discussion on the episode. My heart will go on. The embodiment of faith appears to eliminate individuals who survive because Balthazar has altered history and stopped the thinking of the Titanic. However, she has soon set her sights on Sam and Dean, who have avoided their fates once too often. Michael, with this episode of Supernatural, I learned one very important lesson. Whatever you do, stay out of the coffee room. That, that's right, folks. This episode made me afraid of the coffee machine. Now, the woman in this episode gets killed Xerox style. And what was even worse was the guy at the opening scene of this episode getting decapitated by his garage door. Again, if you think about it, strange murders are pretty normal for Supernatural. But then some really wacky things start happening, with Dean all of a sudden driving a Mustang with orange racing stripes instead of the Impala. And after last being seen going out in a blaze of glory, Ellen from the roadhouse is somehow alive and married to Bobby. Although, before you start thinking that our accusations earlier on in the season that the Supernatural writers are off their rocker has become true, this surprise resurrection of characters was intentional on the writers' part, because it is revealed that Balthazar went back in time and stopped the Titanic from sinking, simply because he hated the movie and the, and the Celine and the Celine the odd song that goes along with it, which Michael is going to sing a few bars of now. Or maybe he could just give us some Lifehouse. Cause you're all I want, you're all I need, you're everything, everything. And that would have been ten times better if they sang that in the Titanic movie. That's all I have to say. It would have been. Yes. At the same time, even though deleting the movie Titanic from the history books was a huge favor to me personally, as I believe that it makes Leonardo DiCaprio the star of awesome movies like The Departed, Blood Diamond, and Inception look like a wimpy pretty boy, Balthazar's actions, like with all time travel stories, including the Ashton Kutcher film The Butterfly Effect and the film starring Erica Durant, the butterfly effect, too, causes saving the Titanic to have its consequences. As a physical form of fate, which can be best described as a 
sexy librarian that Nico would have a crush on is going around and trying to put the universe back in order by killing the descendants of people that were supposed to die on the Titanic. So basically that means Leonardo DiCaprio's character wasn't frozen to the sinking of the Titanic. But anyway, obviously, like with any of the big moral decisions that Sam and Dean had to make throughout the history of the show, they end up turning to Bobby for help. But it's when it's discovered that he will lose Ellen, Bobby, who is supposed to be the level-headed father figure, actually goes the selfish route, that tells the Winchester brothers to not force Balthazar into undoing the sinking of the Titanic, despite the damage it may cause to the universe, because he basically cannot live without his wife. From here, I thought we were going to get a bunch of, a bunch of emotionally charged scenes between Sam and Dean over the morality between behind letting people get killed or them not ever being born at all. Unfortunately, even, they, even though they did a great job of setting up the great morality debate that makes you think, the decision about what to do with the Titanic ends up getting taken out of their hands. As Castiel shows up, it puts the brothers in a position where they are used as bait, where they are used as bait to lure fate into a meeting. All that kind of rhymes there. Anyway, moving forward, despite the episode falling short on the moral debate that comes with time travel, we did get a hilarious scene for Sam and Dean as they try to tempt fate by having some fearful encounters with the bike messengers, dogs throwing axes, and juggling torches, only to meet their maker at the hands of an air conditioner, only to be saved. Moving forward, despite the episode falling short on the moral debate that comes with time travel, we did get a hilarious scene for Sam and Dean, as they try to test fate by having some fearful encounters with a bike messenger, dogs throwing axes, and juggling torches, only to meet their maker at the hands of an air conditioner, which leads to them being saved by Castiel at the last moment. At this point, Castiel tries to fire fate from her post in heaven. But fate insists that Balthazar went too far in unsinking the Titanic, and he did it on Castiel's orders. Castiel denies this, but fate manages to get it out of Castiel that he had Balthazar save the Titanic to get 50,000 more souls to fuel his war machine. Although Castiel's need for help ends up falling upon death ears as she threatens to kill Sam and Dean unless the timeline is put back to normal, putting everyone's favorite angel in a position where he has no other choice but to give up on his battle plan in order to save his friends' lives. Following the commercial break, we return to Bobby's junkyard, where Sam and Dean wake up at the Apollo, thinking that the events that transpired in this episode was a dream. Castiel appears on the scene and tells them it wasn't a dream, and like everybody else in the world, Castiel explains to them that he allowed them to remember the alternate timeline because he wanted them to understand that fate can be fought, and freedom is worth fighting for, especially if, according to Dean, the best part of Titanic is Kate Winslet's rack. Finally, in the last scene of the episode, the brothers go inside to find Bobby asleep on the couch, and they realize that Bobby will never know how good he had it, and that they can't ever tell him. So now that they have a strong desire to go out and find poor Bobby a woman, Going to hand things over to you, Michael, with your thoughts on Supernatural. 
I really liked this week's Supernatural. I thought it was written really well. I thought it was directed really well. And I think they all acted really well. It also blew um, very fast, too. Yeah, it did. And it worked how they made it move fast. Yes. I mean, it's not like those normal episodes where they move so fast that you don't know what's going on. Right. Like my second there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was excellent. I really loved Ellen coming back. Yes. I, I have missed her. I keep really watching that season two finale yes. where her, Bobby, Sam, and Dean go up against Azazel and all that. Right. And I'm like, why isn't she on the show still? And here she is. Yay. So that was, that was yeah. <laughs> the only thing, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't see Jobo seeing as how she was in the previously on. Right. She would have been great to have back with the brothers. Yes. Especially if she was working with them while all this happened. Right. Well, and, and Dean finding out, like, what would happen, because he kind of has a thing for her anyway. Right. So it would have been very interesting. It would have been... Yeah. I, I don't want to say better, because I really liked the episode how it was, but right. it kind of would have been at the same time. Um, now, my thoughts on the full thing, because I have to get this out there. Yeah, I figured you would. Yeah, that was really weird, in all honesty. I did not see it coming. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's a war machine in heaven to help fight or win the Civil War leads me to believe that the East storyline it's not just the storyline that's going to be in for a few episodes like I originally thought it would be. Well, I took that as it, as a war machine was like an army. That they needed people to die so they would go up to heaven and help fight. That's how I took the term war machine. Okay. Because they've said before that souls are very valuable and powerful. But I didn't know if that meant it was fuel for something. Well, yeah, there's just a, there's a guy, there's a Dodge Sheeto up in heaven that needs souls to power his war machine armor. There, there you go, folks. Spoiler alert. Yes. You heard it here first on Across the Airwaves. You can email it up, email us at across the airwaves at gmail.com for more information. Yep, Iron Man 3. Iron Man goes to heaven. But anyway, Marvel has jumped the shark. I might the war in heaven. <laughs> yeah, that would be jumping the shark. Yeah. But um, yeah. Back to this episode. I thought it was really interesting how fate was portrayed. Yeah. And my question, my question is, if fate does all that and has all that to do with death. And what is Death's role, and why haven't we seen Faith before? I don't know. It's just a little thing. The writers haven't thought of it yet. Well, right. That makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that would be it. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't... That was, like, the only problem with this episode. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. such a massive problem that we were, like wanting to get angry and call for Sarah Gamble's head. 
like we did with the whole Sam not having a soul thing. Yeah. If I would have had her numbers then, <laughs> she would have got so many voicemails that would not have even been funny. Right. And she would have quit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no. I'm glad we have Sam still back. It works really well. It did, it did. And, and he's such, it's so much better now. I mean, that, yeah, I wish we could hear about them now in this episode. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right, exactly. I agree. But I felt terrible yeah. for Bobby. Poor Bobby. He had, like, the crappiest exactly. ending in the world. Well, he's had, like, the crappiest season ever. That's true. <laughs> With Rufus being died and Sam trying to kill him and now Ellen... And then now she's gone. Well, he was in a wheelchair all of last season. He was crippled. Well, Bobby has had it worse than anyone on this show. It's true. <laughs> Not really. Well, except for Sam. I, I don't know what they have. Is he like their punching bag? You know, he's big enough to be. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm waiting to look at the cast list for an episode of uh, Supernatural. And it did not say Bobby underneath Jim Beaver's name it's just going to say punching bag they just come up with some clever acronym for Bobby and it's like the name of a punching bag or something yes well it would work I, I, I can see that. a commercial I can see a commercial beat up on a Bobby it's like Mike Tyson you know oh my god punching it it would be kind of funny Wow, this episode is giving us a lot of fuel to make fun of stuff with. Yeah, that'd be pretty amusing. I actually laugh really hard, and I feel bad about it, but... Yeah. <laughs> it is. No, we need yeah. more jokes, you know? Well, Balthazar hating the movie Titanic was hilarious. I think everyone hates that movie, though. I don't even think that's really a joke. That's like reality. I, I loved what Deed said. I loved his response. You'll have to repeat it for me because I don't remember the quote. Basically, he just says, he goes, that Sam's like, oh my God, that's a terrible movie. I hate Titanic. And he's like, it wasn't that bad. He's like, what? What can you tell me that's, that's good about the movie? And he's like, Winslet's Rack. Oh, yeah. Which is the actress <laughs> movie. And I'm just like, yes. I, I didn't catch that part. That's pretty funny. I'll sit back and see that. He scene. says it really oh. quick. Okay, that's probably why. Because I was watching my dad. It was almost like so. they were hoping that people would pick up down the line. So I might have just got just to back on the world of hate mail, but... Oh well. I was abused. Okay, I just have to bring this up since we're talking about Supernatural, yeah. but I've never said it before. There's this creepy person on Twitter who says that she is legitimately um, Jensen Ackles' wife. And they, and Jim Beaver's official Twitter, yeah. Jim Beaver is like, no, you're not. And they had this big fight on Twitter. That's and I was, watch, I was watching it for like a week or two weeks or something like that. It was it was brutal. It was interesting. 
Go Jim Beaver. Exactly. And and Jensen Ackles' Twitter was like silent. So I'm wondering, is she really? Or what's that like? The punching bag fights back. Punching bag fights back. Yeah. Yep. And then she was like yelling at him and getting really mad with him and like swearing and stuff like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like a viper or something. I think Jensen Ackles' wife is actually on One Tree Hill. Really? Yes. Because it didn't say her status thing, it didn't say she was an actor, it said, yes, the wife of Jensen Ackles or something like that. And it was something, it was a She, I, I know that she was on a CW show. Okay. May I have been correct? I, I don't know. Yeah. But with Supernatural, I'm I'm just pumped for next week, the trip to the Old West. Yeah, if we don't get a certain one of the two certain Bon Jovi songs on, hopefully, for I'm gonna be mad. Bon Jovi song, or there's a song by ZZ Top that's that's like a Western song. I can't think of the name of it, but that would be awesome too. Carry on, maybe with Summer will be cool. I feel like the series finale, they're going to play that song. Like during the episode or just Yeah, the during the episode. Thing? Okay. Again, I've still wanted ACDC's Hell's Bells for a while. Yeah, you did that for me. That is creepy. Yeah. So that, that's another one that crosses my mind. But anyway, I'd love to talk more about Supernatural. Again, we kind of killed things with our Smallville discussion. So to cut down on our... But it was worth it. Yes. It was worth it. It was a lot of fun talking about it. So to cut down on our discussion time, we're going to end things up with Supernatural. And we're going to move on to the closing where Nico is going to join us by telling us what's on the slate for next week's episodes. All right. I guess I kind of lied a bit on that one. Because due to... A blank out on my part. Nico will not be joining us for the closing. So I'm going to quickly read to you guys what's coming down the pipe for next week's episode. And on next week's episode, we will not be reviewing Castle because it is on hiatus until the first week of May. But we will still be reviewing Chuck, Bones, Fridge, Supernatural, and the final four episodes of Smallville. And also, please be sure to join us for our Superman live show that's occurring on May 20th. That's one week after the Smallville series finale. And again, that's just so Michael and I and Nico can wrap our brains around the epic finale to be able to talk to you guys about it the following week. And we'll also be joined by our good friend who actually does the Young Justice podcast, our friend Elisa Lee. So she'll be joining us for that. And also, we'd like you guys to join us as well, not only in the chat room, but by answering the three questions that I posted on our website to help kind of make our show more interactive for you guys. And you can access the questions by visiting www.acrosstheairways.com slash Superman Live Show. And that'll give you all the information about the event and how to access our Ustream channel where the show will be taking place. 
So check that out. Again, it's May 20th. That's a Friday. And it will be at 9.15, 8.15 Central, just like our other live shows as we've had in the past. So we're looking forward to seeing you guys joining us. Hopefully, we're hoping that it'll be just as big and have as great of a turnout as Chloe Fest. So everyone, be sure to join us. We had a great time with you guys our last live show. That we want to keep it up and we want to celebrate the end of Smallville, which is a show that's meant a lot to me personally, as well as Michael and Nico. So be sure to join us for that. Also, as I say every week and need to pick up, check out our podcast segments on our Facebook and Twitter. The titled Things I Learned from How I Met Your Mother and Psych Thoughts. The Psych Thoughts will be dramatically picking up. We just kind of ran rehide schedule a little bit on our past two episodes. So hopefully things will get on schedule. We won't be having internet issues and I'll be able to pick up on those things. Also, if you want to, to answer our questions for the live show I just mentioned, or to just talk to us about your theories on Fringe or Supernatural or any of the other shows we talk about, you can visit our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can access our email, which is acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can access our Twitter page, which is Across Airwaves. There's no the, it's just Across Airwaves. You can also access our Facebook page for all of Nico's TV news that he posts during the week and mentions on our podcast. And you can also access our YouTube channel, which is filled with videos and promos for Across the Airwaves, made by Michael J. Petty. And he also puts on there trailers and previews for upcoming movies, and episodes of our favorite show. So if the video isn't on Facebook, it's most likely on the YouTube channel, so check that out. Also with your theories, you can call our voicemail. And what's that number, Nico? 773-809-3363. And also, if you don't want to go back and listen to this podcast for all of that information again, you can access our Android app, which will let you listen to episodes of our show and be able to connect with our podcast, communicate with us, with just one touch of the finger. So check that out. You can access it on the right-hand side of our Across the Airways page. So with that, once again, for our Brain Trust member and editor, Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstick. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airwaves. Have a great week, everybody. Well, you don't know what we can find. now return to our regularly scheduled program.